You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, more commonly referred to as COP27, was to wind up this morning, but negotiators are still at the table. It's taking place in Egypt, where a contingent from Hawaii has been taking part. So what's the sticking point in the talks? HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote joins us with the latest. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, the talks are going on longer than expected, and we are still getting updates, but it's all revolving around this idea of loss and damage. That has been the point that has been most contentious throughout the talks so far, and I think it's an important term to break down a little bit, because when we're talking about climate changes, climate change and we're talking about the impact of climate change, there's impacts that we can mitigate, things that we can protect ourselves against, and there are things that we can't. And that latter category is what makes up loss and damages. And we're talking about the tensions between the developed countries and the developing countries here. Right, exactly. So many countries, specifically small island nations who are feeling loss and damages now, came to COP27 this year specifically to get funding for loss and damages from larger developed countries on the agenda. They feel hung out to dry by the fact that they are seeing increasing climate crises, but they didn't actually contribute to the emissions the way larger and historically large emitter countries have. And that's why that's become such a sticking point. They don't think that COP27 will be successful unless they get a commitment from these countries like the United States and the EU to contribute funds to a loss and damage finance base. So how much are we talking about? Because you hear loss and damage and you think ka-ching, ka-ching. Ka-ching, <laughs> ka-ching. Yes, we're talking about billions, if not trillions of dollars. And the tricky part is that as the climate increases and climate change increases and temperatures get hotter, that's only going to cost more and more. So Vanuatu actually, before COP27, cri- tried to create a bill to calculate its loss and damages, and that bill came out to over $170 million. But not everything that we are going to lose to climate change can be calculated. So I talked to Tammy Tabe. She is from the Solomon Islands, and she's an Oceana research fellow at the East-West Center, and she put this into context. When you have disasters happening across the Pacific, how do you quantify the loss of cultural resources that perhaps nurture Pacific Islands identity? So a lot of these things cannot be quantified on the loss and damage. So that kind of open-ended nature of the problem is part of the reason why many countries have been squeamish about committing to a loss and damage fund. Are they opening themselves up to open-ended liability? I also spoke with Ryan Longman. He's another Oceana fellow at the East-West Center, and he specializes in climate finance. And he thinks that loss and damage is the defining issue at this year's COP. But he says that countries have a monumental task ahead of them if they actually are going to break down the necessary guidance for a fund. I think another complicated part of this fund is if just establishing the guidelines, right? Who has to pay? How much should each country pay? Uh, what countries or disasters kind of qualify for this compensation, and then really how much should they get? It's a lot more complicated than just saying, okay, here's a fund. There's a lot of guidelines, things that need to be established, and I don't know if that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. So where are we at right now? So there was a gridlock earlier in the week, but the EU put forward a proposal saying that they were interested in creating a fund. What the, One of their necessary conditions was that it would have a broad funder base. So that language is very particular, and what it's saying is not only do historic admitters like the U.S. and the EU need to contribute and commit to funding, but you also need to see countries that are newer on the stage, like China, contribute to and say they're going to su- support these small island nations. So we're looking at this now to see whether or not COP27 will meet its goal of being the implementation COP. That's how it's been billed. And small island nations are saying no. (laughs) If there isn't some sort of fund that you are able to contribute to, then we are not going to see any guidance moving forward as we are dealing with these climate crises in real time. I also spoke with Richard Walsgrove. He's a professor at the William S. Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and he actually attended COP27 this year, and he said that he's not sure whether or not we're going to see this commitment at the conference, but even still, the question of loss and damage had a significant impact on the overall tone of the conversation. The unifying theme here is the word justice. The concept of climate justice 
has not always been welcome to the United States. It was a word that was excised out of some federal reports a few years back. Um, and I think that, that that loss and damage, to use the international phrase, <laughs> that loss and damage discussion really put the concept of justice front and center. And he brought a number of you know the students uh, from the law school with him to, on that trip, right? Yes, he did. And I talked to several of those students who were a little bit frustrated by the proceedings. They were a little bit disenchanted by how slowly negotiations go and how business gets done at COP27. And something that they iterated, as well as Rich Wal- Richard Walsgrove, is this idea that COP will end, even if it's going on longer than expected, and then we all go home. So it's a matter next of what we can do at home, particularly in Hawaii, because we do know firsthand the challenges that you face on an archipelago when it comes to climate change. How can we support other nations? Yeah, but uh, what a great opportunity to, to have that um, seat at the table uh, at this conference. But thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote. To read her story, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Green Growth Executive Director Celeste Connors knows how difficult COP negotiations can be. She had firsthand experience as the Director for Environment and Climate Change for the White House under the Obama presidency. As head of the United Nations Local 2030 Hub, her job is to ensure that local programs and policies work to keep Hawaii on track with its green goals by 2030. Connors sees climate change as the challenge of our lifetime. The group just convened a gathering of the counties and other stakeholders this past month, forging ahead as we focus on action plans to deal with rising sea levels and global warming. Connors reflected on why the talks are so important when we spoke with her earlier this week. There's a lot of focus on adaptation. How do countries adapt to the already occurring impacts of climate change? Finance, particularly loss and damage, are really important issues, you know, and that's it comes down to loss and damages. Developing economies or small island developing states, those that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, are needing financial support to adjust to these impacts, including, you know, if there's sea level rise or catastrophic event. And is always, you know, this is the point in the process actually right now, so today and tomorrow, where the ministers actually engage in the discussions and really trying to find a solution. So currently with the negotiations, a lot of the issues are open and the biggest ones are how to characterize progress since the last meeting in Glasgow. And you know, the conference of the parties, you know, just for context, these are these international climate meetings that are convened every year, UN meetings, and these are the members that are party to this agreement. So it's really important for accountability to discuss where did we get to from last year? And the last negotiations was in Glasgow. And what was exciting is that we announced a $9 million initiative with the U.S. Department of State, NOAA, and the Department of Energy focused on local action and particularly island-led solutions to help achieve and address the climate crisis. And so that's what our team is there on the ground. We have a team of two young women, um, Laura Cam and Samantha Happ, are actually in Egypt right now that are part of our team working with other island economies focused sort of on three things, data for climate resilience, focusing on transition to clean energy economy, and actually looking at sustainable and regenerative tourism for island economies as an economic recovery mechanism, all deeply connected to climate change. So we're also really delighted to have one of our former teammates, Haley Campbell from Hawaii, who is there representing the Youngos. Um, And just by way of background, the Youngos are the official youth constituency of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And actually yesterday they celebrated a huge success in finally securing official recognition as stakeholders in designing and implementing climate policies. So, you know, I think the bigger picture is still a lot is open. It's a difficult negotiation, but the bright spots are certainly happening on the margins of the actual negotiations with things that the youth are doing. And we're delighted to have representatives from Hawaii there that are working actively with other islands on solutions. What are we doing here 
now that we can get our, you know, we can wrap our arms around. Having been in these negotiations myself, at the end of them, you're often wondering, well, when does the implementation actually take place? And as we begin implementation, the moral compass becomes a direction to create the sort of change around adaptation and mitigation. When we look to solutions, without a doubt, we derive inspiration from islands because islands know how to do this. We've been dealing with these impacts of climate change. So bringing it down to the local level and in Hawaii in particular, there's a lot of inspiration and actions that are already happening. And a lot of these actions, Kathy, are actually building on, you know, a thousand year history of indigenous knowledge and wisdom and systems thinking that we have a lot to learn from. And that idea of regenerative tourism regenerative development is something that islands and Hawaii included are leading. It's really critically important now that, you know, as we think about the negotiations, how does that apply to here, us here locally? We just convened our annual partnership event with over 300 stakeholders doing incredible things in, in local food, in clean energy transitions, in green workforce and education and in reducing waste. And, and this is part of the process. So climate change is the challenge of our lifetime. However, the process to address this challenge comes in the form of sustainability and the sustainable development goals and the Aloha Plus challenge. It's really looking at the local level for those intersections across sectors between the individual and organizations. And I think those are the areas that Hawaii does quite well and is really a leader. And we've got a, a summit coming up. We'll talk about that. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, you know, Mayor Mitch Ross in Hawaii Island is convening the second sustainability summit. He's inviting stakeholders from across the state, and we're delighted to partner with him on that. He recently committed to take the challenge, and what that means is we have a local dashboard where individuals and families and school groups can actually compete <laughs> with each other, and you can actually commit to taking specific steps to change behavior. That includes choosing different forms of transportation, the lower emission forms of transportation, purchasing your food locally, being more energy and water efficient with your choices. And all of that data, Kathy, we're collecting and we can track um, and and determine, you know, which groups are doing better. So really, when you think about the COP again, the climate negotiations, this all comes down to the need for massive behavior change across every sector of our society before 2030 to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. And what the County of Hawaii is doing is really further localizing that to individual actions that we can take. And not only that, but to be able to track our progress on an online dashboard to celebrate bright spots or wins, to scale those innovative solutions, to bring folks together. And I think this is a perfect time to have this summit right after the climate negotiation, where everybody's gonna be asking themselves the exact same question you asked me. What now, and how do we do this at the local level and at the individual level? And you are kicking off a survey uh, that ends this weekend, and you're trying to get uh, some participation from the public. Well, what do they need to know? Well, really, any successful project on or initiative or action that we want to take for a more sustainable future for Hawaii, and as the youth that participated in our, some, our Hawaii Green Growth Summit recently talked about the future they want for Hawaii and island earth, And the best solutions are only going to come from those that have actual community engagement, community input about what is the future we want for our immediate communities and and for our state. And so we're giving folks the opportunity to share that mana'o, that information that will be actually taken to determine what the specific initiative should be, you know, immediately within the next 12 months, the next 18 months. And as we work towards the 2030 timeline and beyond 2050. And what's important, though, is to connect that stakeholder engagement to specific actions and also resources. How are we identifying resources, even from outside the state to Hawaii, to support our partners in implementing those projects? Okay, so if uh, folks out there want to take part, it's what, a five, ten minute survey? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just take the quick time to, to jot down what you're interested in, and I can tell you that that information will really inform the discussions, make them much more rich. It's, again, it's, I can't emphasize enough that development, sustainable development needs to be community-driven, and when those opportunities are presented to provide community engagement, we really also need to do that. Okay. All right. Anything else? I think I've shared this with you before, Kathy, too. I'm a pragmatic optimist. I think it's quite easy to feel a bit disillusioned after these climate negotiations and wondering how that happens. But I derive huge inspiration 
from our local communities and in particular our youth leaders. And it's really important that we do what we can right now to support them as they're trying to navigate a pathway forward for Hawaii, the future that they want for Hawaii and Island Earth. And so I'm really confident that meetings that we're going to have you know, on Hawaii Island are steps in the right direction to get to where we need to go. All right. Well, thank you so much, Celeste. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Aloha. That was Celeste Connors, head of the Hawaii Green Growth Office, talking to us about COP27, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, and the upcoming Sustainability Summit on Hawaii Island, uh, prior, uh, prioritizing partnerships to build policy. And that survey you heard about is open until Sunday, and that dashboard is just launching. Head to the conversation page of our website for links later today. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We have an interview with the director of the musical comedy, Susical that opens tonight on Kauai, coming up later in the show. So we're testing your knowledge of the beloved Dr. Seuss. Theodore Seuss of Geisel was born in 1904 and is best known as the author and illustrator uh, for Dr. Seuss. He wrote over 60 books that were translated into 20 languages and sold over 600 million copies by the time of his death in 1991. Seuss began his career as a political cartoonist and his work dealt with themes ranging from family and belonging to difference in environmental crisis. Though he never had children of his own, his books are childhood standards and skillfully engage young readers and adults alike in the act of reading, listening, and writing. Dr. Seuss was honored locally years ago by uh, the creation of a mural made out of bottle caps in a Kauai school cafeteria. For today's Backyard Quiz, what's the name of that school? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. And pick up a reusable HBR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. today's reality check, we take a look at uh, how Police Chief Joe Logan is attempting to rebuild community trust. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter James Gonzer joins us today. Good morning, James. Good morning, Catherine. Great to be here with you. Yes, and you know, uh, I was surprised to learn that uh, the Honolulu's Police Chief wasn't at that Waikiki uh, security um, uh, forum that they had yesterday, but he was attending something else that you were at. That's right. That that other forum may have been the bigger picture, but this one I think was more specific to what he was trying to achieve with the Hawaii Society of Business Professionals, which, like you said, is rebuild community trust. And he's trying to do that step by step with many, many different groups. So what was uh, their big concern? They were concerned about several things that, of course, relate to business, um, homeless people and mental illness affecting community people who like sleep on their doorways or or, or come into their businesses Uh, staffing of the police department which is way down and they need a lot more employees and supporting the police they wanted to do their part these were people that really took 
the chief's message to heart and wanted to help him do his job. Yes, and, you know, it's tough. I mean, you know, in Waikiki, you know, we saw the uh, crime rate soar, but it is down, you know, and, and the department has a challenge trying to staff those patrols when, when they're down people. Yeah, uh, Waikiki, he, he talked about some uh, because many of these businesses are in Waikiki, and he he said that there was a lot of drug sales at the pavilions down there, and they have focused on that and arrested a lot of people, and he said more or less cleared that out. And the repetitive criminals, the ones that continue to steal from stores, continue to harass tourists and residents, he said instead of just arresting them and letting them go with a warning or whatever, they're arresting them and rearresting them until they get the message clearly that they're not wanted there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're dealing with, I guess, the chronic population, right? Um, but, you know, it, it is scary because, you know, like we saw in Waikiki where the, the, uh, those surfboard racks were, you know, set on fire, and those are right up against hotels. So, you know, safety is a, a big concern for these businesses. Yeah, business is kind of like the first line. They see everything that happens. And and rebuilding the trust, the chief has a big job because of his two predecessors, uh, Susan Ballard, who resigned suddenly after a bad review, and, of course, Louis K. Aloha, who uh, we all know his criminal problems took him out of office. So he's only been the chief since June, and he has spoke with dozens of groups. You know, yeah, I mean, that's how you do, right? You've you got to build a relationships, and they may not be uh, familiar, you know, with him, um, you know, when he was over at, at Haima. But, you know, he's really getting out and, and I guess, pressing the flesh and, and talking eye-to-eye with these groups. That's right, and, and answering their questions. You know, like I said, they do want to help, but they're not quite sure how. You know, they see the problems. How do they help? Well, he told them to get involved with community policing, to set up a meeting, and they will walk them through step-by-step, you know, what should you do in what situations? How can we work together? Because he reiterated several times that we can't arrest ourselves or arrest our way out of these problems. It's a community problem, state, city, business, residents. That's how we're going to solve these things. And did they talk about how else the community could help support uh, the police departments? Um, not Well, not directly. They did talk about helping, supporting recruitment of police officers. So if you have a, a, a child who may be of age to think about being a police officer or in college and, and thinking about their careers, that it's not a bad thing to encourage them to at least consider being a police officer. It's it's really a demanding job, but it's also very rewarding, according to the chief. Yeah, so I guess he's just going to be making his way, you know, one group at a time, right? And uh, and listening uh, to them and engaging them uh, about the problems in their area. Yeah, I think so. And it is encouraging to that he is doing that. He is reaching out, and he really wants to be a leader of this community. All right. Well, thanks so much, James. All right. Thank you. That was reporter James Gonzer with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read his full story at civilbeat.org. Here in Hawaii, the election results won't be certified until next week, but our listeners are still weighing in on the races. A handful of incumbents were unseated in some very close races. And during our post-election conversation with political analysts Richard Barreca and Dan Boylan, they discussed the upset in the Maui mayoral race. Afterwards, we got this on our talkback line. Aloha, this is Nikhil Ananda calling from Huelo on Maui. And many people felt that since so many people challenged the current mayor during the primary, that it really was not an upset that people, most people sort of felt that he would lose. And it's not the first time on Maui. We had three mayors in a row lose. Kimo Pana lost to Alan Arakara. Alan Arakara lost to 
Charmaine Tavares. Charmaine Tavares lost to Alan Aracara. Linda Lingle served two terms in a row, then Alan served two terms in a row, then Victorino just served one term, and now we have Richard Bisson. Anyway, mahalo for the show. Aloha from the North Shore of Maui. And mahalo for the feedback. If you've got a comment or a story to share, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Support for HPR comes from S2BN, presenting Bonnie Raitt in concert with guest John Cruz at the Blaisdell on March 28th and at the MAC on March 31st. Tickets on Oahu at Ticketmaster.com and on Maui at MauiArts.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Yael Schiller, author of Modern Dreamwork and PTS Dreams. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about complex dreams and nightmares to work through difficult issues. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. This past year, the University of Hawaii lost one of its own. Barbara Smith is credited with building the Ethnomusicology Department, which celebrates everything from Hawaiian mele and hula to Javanese uh, gamelan. Her contributions were celebrated recently, and the passion for the field that she shared with her students is a driving force behind a petition that has been circulating. Close to 200 people have signed on to save the Ethnomusicology Department that she founded. Organizers plan to send the petition to the administration today as International Education Week comes to a close. We talked to Scary, uh, Terry Skillman, a graduate of the program, who's trying to rally support to keep it from folding. It's really important because those of us who've been through the program, there's quite a feeling of ohana and a network of ethnomusicology students who've been through the program. But there's also, you know, um, international uh, positions that all of the graduates are now in. And so it's a really extensive reach for this uh, the alumni of ethnomusicology. And we got so much out of the program, and we benefited greatly from um, everything that Ms. Smith put her, you know, into her whole life work. Um, for the program. So we also have a, a feeling of responsibility to help out if, if ever possible in, in any way, you know, to see it continue. Um, it is her legacy. And she just passed away last year. So um, that's why we're really concerned. Ms. Smith came to Hawaii after graduating from Eastman. Uh, and she started working in the music department in 1949. She supported contemporary music and composition. She herself was a pianist, and she had a vision for developing the ethnomusicology program. And her efforts established the UH Manoa's program as one of the first, the nation's first programs in the emerging field of ethnomusicology. Of course, at that time, it was still the territory, but she put her whole life's work and research and efforts into building the ethnomusicology program at UH. In 2020, she reached 100, and so we celebrated her life um, by holding, uh, during COVID, it, this was all, of course, on Zooms, we held um, seven different uh, monthly panels 
of uh, her students presenting papers on the research topics and uh, areas they were focusing on. And it was attended widely. I mean, this was an international attendance. People were watching from Europe as well as from Asia, all over the Pacific and the continental U.S. And that was followed by uh, four live stream performances um, celebrating uh, her the year-long celebration of her 100th birthday. And then uh, she passed away in 2021, reaching 101. You're really rallying for this department that she played, you know, such a big role in establishing. I went to the website and I saw that they had actually stopped accepting students because their two professors, uh, full-time faculty, were retiring. Yes, the last two faculty members retired at the end of the school year, so there is no ethnomusicology faculty right now. But Dr. Andy Sutton will be moving from his position of assistant vice provost into a faculty position in ethnomusicology, which is a welcome first step uh, toward revitalizing the program. It's critical for the university, one, because it's internationally renowned, and the program meets all of the strategic goals that the university has outlined. The focus is uh, learning, you know, international cultural traditions and the Hawaiian sense of place and Hawaiian culture. Miss Smith was key in bringing on board the very first Hawaiian chanter to teach as a lecturer in the music department, and that was Ka'upena Wong. He was the very first one to be employed as a lecturer uh, in, in Hawaiian chanting. The other kumu who have taught in the music department teaching hula classes, and there's three different levels of, of uh, hula classes in the, in the music department. So there's a beginning and intermediate, and then the top level is repeatable indefinitely. And they've had Ho'oudu Kambra, Edward Kalahiki, currently Noi Noi Zudemeister, and then Vicky Holt Takamine also teaches hula, but it is cross-listed under dance, which is the theater and dance department. So the music department or ethnomusicology program was really important in supporting um, Hawaiian cultural courses. In addition to that, not only does the program train ethnomusicologists for teaching positions in universities, but many of the students learn about cultural traditions through participatory classes. As I mentioned, Hawaiian hula and chant, then there's gagaku, gamelan, koto, Korean dance, Japanese dance, Okinawan ensemble and dance, and Filipino dance. Um, all of those courses came under the ethnomusicology program. They're cross-listed, for example, with Asian studies, with Center of Southeast Asian studies, if it's geographically specific. So these courses can be taken by students in the university. And it also teaches, I think, really valuable life skills. If you look at the Facebook page that we've started, there's one post of Matt Dunn, who is a game designer. He grew up with his parents playing in the gamelan, and they both still play in the gamelan. And through that process of growing up, he got to study with Pak Susilo, who was the uh, gamelan instructor. Um, Pak Susilo is from Indonesia, from the court in, in Java, as well as he had his degree from UCLA. And he taught at the university for a very long time. And Matt benefited from directly studying with Pak Sus. So even though he didn't go into ethnomusicology, he carries those life lessons with him and it has a, a direct impact on how he works in the, in the game design world. Ethnomusicology is really celebrating the folk music and dance of cultures uh, across the globe. And like you mentioned, as, you, as you're reaching out to the, your fellow graduates, there seems to be just this deep respect for uh, Ms. Smith's you know, contribution to that program there at the University of Hawaii. Yes. I mean, David Harnish said in one post on the Facebook page that he wouldn't be where he is had it not been for the ethnomusicology program, because uh, in most of us, it was finding that niche um, at the intersection of music and culture, as well as, you know, uh, Asian Pacific focused music and culture. UH was the first to offer those type of classes nationwide. And it's really 
I think it's really a hallmark for the field of ethnomusicology. There are very few other ethnomusicology programs who that are like UH, and I, I think it's really important that this is a, I think, a feather in UH's cap, and we need to make sure that it continues. How many students are currently in the program? Right now, I believe there's seven students currently in the program, and they're at varying stages of doing their, you know, degree work. Some, I think there's maybe two or three who are still doing coursework, and then the remaining uh, four will be out in the field doing their research work. But it's really critical to have graduate-level faculty to mentor graduate students from the beginning all the way through completion of their coursework and writing their, their thesis or dissertation. Um, there, are, there are lecturers who are helping out who, who have graduated in ethnomusicology, um, such as Ben Fairfield and Kirk Sullivan, who are helping out by teaching certain classes. But unless you have the graduate-level faculty status, you can't be on a committee to mentor the students, and that's really critical. Um, so we, we, want to, we want to see the program continue, and the only way that would happen would be, of, of course, um, trying to get back up to that glory level of four professors um, for the ethnomusicology program. And again, as I said, having Dr. Sutton come in as faculty for uh, ethnomusicology is a really positive first step. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Keep us posted on your efforts to uh, rally uh, the administration to take some action. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time speaking with me. That was Terry Skillman, a graduate of the Ethnomusicology Department at the University of Hawaii, talking about a petition to save the program. Petition organizers intend to send it to the administration today as we mark the end of International Education Week. Today's Backyard Quiz asked you to identify the name of the local public school that is a home to a mural created in honor of Dr. Seuss. Theodore Seuss Geisel, better known as the best-selling children's book author Dr. Seuss, wrote and illustrated stories that have stayed in the hearts of generations of children. His colorful and unusual drawings of human and animal-like creatures existing in familiar and strange landscapes respect both the joy and the depth of a child's perception. The Dr. Seuss mural was first erected about 10 years ago in the cafeteria of King Kamuali'i Elementary School in Lehui, Kauai, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. The mural consists of brightly colored plastic bottle caps and was erected in the school's cafeteria. And congrats to our winner, Ed Frazier of Puna. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And after the break, we'll have an interview with Carol Culver, the former Grease cast member and director of Hawaii's children's uh, theater's musical comedy, Susical Opening, on Kauai Tonight. We'll be right back. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with holiday gift ideas such as original art, jewelry, and clothing by Hawaii artists. Online ordering at magnolia-hawaii.com. Control of Congress has shifted. It's going to be a Democratic-held Senate and a Republican-controlled House, but not so fast. Democrats are hoping to get some work done during the lame duck session. We'll also talk about soul-searching in the Republican Party, and we'll check in with two pollsters who are in the trenches in the midterms. Join Moa Lathy, Sarah Isger, Margie Omero, Jim Hobart, and me, David Green, for Left, Right, and Center. Beginning this evening at 7, following All Songs Considered. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting hard rock band Blue Oyster Cult, performing songs such as Don't Fear the Reaper, 8 p.m. Sunday, December 4th. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com.
Live musical theater returns to Kauai this weekend. After a COVID-induced season of streaming shows, Hawaii Children's Theater's fall musical Susical will be in person. It'll feature a cast of 42 adults and youth performers. The Conversations Lillian Song caught up with the busy director and choreographer Carol Culver between rehearsals. I chose Susical because I figured Dr. Seuss deals with chaos. <laughs> and since we've been coming out of this whole period this last few years of so much chaos, I thought what better show to do than a show that deals with all of that craziness but turns it into creativity. Very apropos, and when I think of Dr. Seuss, I always think of vibrant colors, yes. of just fun sounds, and with Seussical, there's definitely that music element. Yes. You're the director, choreographer, very active with Kauai Theater, and how do you engage young talent? I don't treat them like children. I treat them like professionals, and at the same time, respect and honor their childish tendencies and awarenesses so that they start to mature in the process of doing a show like this because the fall shows are much more the level of professional theater than children's theater. For Hawaii Children's Theater, when we have our summer programs, that's where we do the things that are geared more toward the children. And so working with them in a fall show, which is a more full-on theater presentation, I try to bring them up to the level of professional, and I start right off the bat by talking to them about that. But of course, you know, they're children, so you have to allow for the childish tendencies in children's activities and children's things, but it's a process of bringing them into that. It becomes a real good teaching for them on maturing and responsibility. When you're working with Hawaii Children's Theater, but even with your time at KPAC, what was the youngest age group you're working with? Well, I also teach dance. I have a dance school here on Kauai, Carol Culver Dance Academy, and I teach kids as young as three. I've changed it to four as I've gotten older, because it's a little harder to work with three-year-olds and having to bend down and pick them up, because I'm 75 now. <laughs> but working with, in the shows, musical shows, try to keep it to no younger than nine, because of the late hours that we have. We have a lot of rehearsals when we're putting a show together, like Susical, for example, anytime we do one of the fall shows. It's a three to four month rehearsal period and it's long hours and it has to be later in the evenings because it's a combination of adults and children. So we have to factor in the adults' work schedule with the children's ability to stay out long enough. So, mm, Because you're overseeing everybody's schedule to rehearse and if you do have young children you have to be mindful of their bedtimes exactly yeah and so right now the challenge is this week is being able to allow we just actually allowed some of our north shore kids to leave earlier for these important dress rehearsals so that they can make it back home in time to get to bed a little bit whereas we're doing later rehearsals so the challenge is definitely in there scheduling is a huge challenge mm. <laughs> because we have, have to work around everybody's conflicts so that I can plan the rehearsal schedule around them. And then, of course, we had a number of people wound up with COVID, wind up with COVID during the course of um, the rehearsal process. Hopefully, we're not going to have any of that happening anymore for this show. It brought another element of having to reschedule, reschedule, reschedule. Okay, I That's see. probably been the ch biggest challenge is doing all the scheduling. Some of your early work was being a dancer on the musical Grease. You were an assistant choreographer on the film Grease. You had a very long, successful career in TV and Broadway, film, all that, and you brought it to this community here in the islands. You bring a lot of knowledge of the industry to the table. My background is Broadway, TV, and film. When I was in my early 20s, I went to New York and wound up understudied and replacing the lead in the musical The Boyfriend initially. That was in the early 70s and then went from there into a couple of other national touring companies and then eventually got into working with the cast of Grease. And I was Patty Simcox in the first national touring company of Grease and the dance captain at that time to Patricia Birch, who was the choreographer. And so what I was responsible for doing besides playing my role was putting in all the people into the show as we were having replacements come in throughout the 
time we were doing our tour and then when the other tours were going on and then I wound up going in and replacing on Broadway and then when they did the movie I was one of six people that was able to go and participate and be one of the people in the movie as well so I was one of the dancers in the movie and was the assistant choreographer to Pat Birch on the movie so that's how Grease played in for me and in fact we just had a 50-year reunion for the Grease on Broadway casts all of the casts in New York in early June. I think it was June 7th. This year? Yeah, we just did that. Yeah. Mm. And we're getting close to having our 50-year reunion for the movie coming up. That would be, uh, at, what to see, 27. Yeah, 2027, because that was, God, the years are just like crazy. 1977 when we did the movie. So, Carol, for you, you were like there in your early 20s. It sounds like you really got a lot of on-the-job training. You're really perfecting your stagecraft, learning from those ahead of you, really what theater is about. Absolutely. I credit Patricia Birch, who was the choreographer of Grease, and Patricia Birch choreographed a number of Broadway shows, lots and lots of Broadway shows, and she was a master at working with people who were non-dancers, getting them to look masterful on stage, doing choreography and staging. And so I learned a lot from working with her over those five years I was doing the theater version of Grease and then, of course, the movie. The movie, we had more professional, full-on dancers, but learned a lot from her. And so that skill that I learned from her, I've been able to bring to Hawaii Children's Theater, and when I was also working with KPAC, Hawaii Performing Arts Center, when I first came to Hawaii. But yeah, so that, that was one of those wonderful opportunities that enabled me to bring that Broadway learning, that skill to the children and the teens and the adults here on Kauai. I understand it's a pretty big cast, 42 members, about 20 local youth actors under the age of 13. Like you're saying, the youngest would be nine. Yes, they're doing amazingly well. Some of them, good number of them are my dance students, so that's kind of fun to have them being able to, to work in the show as well. That's what I like to do when I'm teaching, is I'm basically giving them the basics so that when they're, there's musical theater to be a part of, they have the skills they need to participate in that, and that's what I try to gear my students for. Mm. You see Susical being a wonderful show to bring after a period of hiatus. You know, you're doing a full-scale production. What can audiences look forward to? So the show is going to be very colorful. Barbara Green is our costume designer. She's done some amazing work with bringing the colors to life. Our sets are brightly colored, lots of, lots of color, as you mentioned. You think of Dr. Seuss, there's lots of color. So bringing that, that colorful energy into a cohesive chaos, <laughs> creative <laughs> cohesive chaos. There's several of Dr. Seuss's books and stories that are interwoven throughout the story of Seussical. So the writers who put it together, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, who wrote the book and music for the show, did a really good job of interweaving all of those Dr. Seuss stories into a, an interesting and fun show for people to enjoy. And the music for the show, this show is one of those kinds of shows that does not have very much book, meaning dialogue. So almost everything in the show is a musical number. So we go from one musical number to the next musical number to the next musical number with a very small amount of dialogue in between. And, of course, the dialogue is the Seuss rhyming. So working it so that you can have a show happening that feels like they're going through the flow of listening to something that they're able to hear and understand, I'm talking about the audience, without it sounding sing-songy. So that's what I try to bring to it. I don't like to have them have to just hear it be like sing-songy sounding. So you definitely have the Seuss rhyming in there, but you have it also flowing so that there's a nice feel of understanding the lyrics and the words and the songs and the music and the dialogue in a flow that is more understandable than just poetry rhyming. And I'm so blessed to have such wonderful people to work with. So it's, it can be very challenging being the director of a show, especially a show that has so many bizarre elements to it. The show has a lot of things about it that are difficult to pin down, to put your finger on how it's going to look, how it's going to feel, how it's going to... So translating that to my team has been difficult. But they're amazing. 
<laughs> they're just amazing. The show runs two weekends. We open the 18th of November, Friday night, and we close Sunday the 27th. And I am hoping the audience has that experience of just really fully enjoying the flow of it. That was Carol Culver, director and choreographer of HCT's fall musical, Susical, talking with HPR's Lillian Song before the curtains go up on tonight's opening. The show goes on for the next two weekends. We'll share links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that does it for us on this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we pause to reflect on the year anniversary of the Red Hill fuel contamination of our drinking water. What are your thoughts? Call 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Stephanie Hahn. Thanks to John DeMello for the Backyard Quiz Oli, Gypsy 808 for our theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.